Welcome to Medical Educator Talks. Welcome to our podcast, Medical Educator Talks, where members from the Developing Medical Educators team at the Academy of Medical Educators discuss topics of interest with experienced colleagues from their field. In today's episode, we're in conversation with Professor Jackie Hayden talking about medical education leadership. Hello and welcome to the very first Medical Educate Talks podcast. Um, Thank you for listening. Um, We are from the Developing Medical Educators Group and the Academy of Medical Educators and hopefully through this podcast series you're going to hear from some absolutely exceptional educators who are uh, specialists in their field and they'll be being interviewed by us, the Developing Medical Educators team. Uh, So my name is uh, Jamie Fisher, I am a teaching fellow at the University of Surrey uh, in Guildford and I'm one of the co-leads of the Developing Medical Educators Group, alongside my co-host, Lewis. Hi, Jamie. Uh, yep, so I'm Lewis Hendon-John. I am an anaesthetic trainee by background. And as Jamie said, we are two of the co-leads of the Developing Medical Educators Group. Um, and just a quick plug for the Developing Medical Educators Group. It's a fantastic resource for anyone who's looking for their next steps in medical education. Uh, if you visit medicaleducators.org forward slash DMEG, and you can find out more about us there. Thank you, Lewis. And this week uh, on our first podcast, we're delighted to have Professor Jackie Hayden with us. So thank you for coming, Jackie. Um, would, would you be able to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, as you say, my name's Jackie Hayden, uh, and I think I'm here in my role as president of the Academy of Medical Educators. Uh, I have a background in general practice and in medical education. I was the postgraduate medical dean in the Northwest for almost 20 years. Um, now, in addition to my work as president of the academy, I also do some non-executive roles. Uh, I am a non-executive director at University Hospitals Plymouth, and I also work for the Medical Practitioner Tribunal Service. Yeah, so many hats there. That's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so I think as you as you alluded to, we're going to focus kind of mainly on the medical education leadership side, so mainly the role as the president of the academy. Um, could you take us through a bit about what that involves, being the, the president of the Academy of Medical Educators? Okay, so the president is, um, I, I guess, we, we have a, a, a role that... Um, we're the lead uh, for the council Um, and the role involves governance to make sure that as the trustees of the academy we're compliant with the Charities Act and as a limited company that we're compliant with all that's expected of limited companies. Um, But much more importantly, the president is the leader. Um, I see my role as facilitating others to deliver the work of the academy, making sure that we comply with our values and our standards, 
encouraging new educators to get involved, supporting those who've been with us for a while. Um, and I think our most important role is to ensure standards of medical education. Fab. And um, what sort of was it that made you want to get into medical education in the first place? How did, how did Prof Jackie Hayden start out? Well, it was a long time ago, really. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to tell you I was a child bride, but I wasn't. Um, so it started, I think, as a trainee when I was a general practice trainee. I think probably even before that. Um, but certainly as a trainee, I was working with a group of general practitioners who were interested in medical education. Um, and I was training in Oxford and Oxford at that time was one of the leading parts of the country in terms of developing understanding of medical education. They worked with teachers of teachers uh, and began to use some of their learning to encourage the trainers um, to develop as educators. And then I moved to the Northwest and I didn't know anyone um, but I was introduced to someone who was then what was called, I think he was the course organiser um, and then associate regional advisor. In today's language, that would be training programme director and uh, associate dean. And because I didn't know anyone, um, he started to introduce me to a number of areas. He introduced me to the day release course uh, and so I got involved there and he also took me to the Royal College of General Practitioners local faculty meeting where I met a number of other people interested in medical education and so I got involved in the college and got involved in medical education um, and then when I was on my first episode of maternity leave, um, he asked me to get involved uh, in the day release course a bit more. So I started to take a regular part and then um, was appointed course organiser, training programme director, and just gradually moved on from there. Uh, also a trainer. Um, yeah. Oh, do you want me to keep going? No, that, I mean, that's brilliant. I think that quite still reflects how people tend to get into medical education now. Um, do you think much has changed in terms of the route into medical education? I think there's more formal opportunities. So if we think about both of your roles as clinical teaching fellows, um, I think that's a fabulous opportunity to just take some time. I know you both kept your clinical medicine going and I think that's really important, but to take some time to reflect and think about uh, other, other roles of doctors and our role as educators really important. Um, educator for the next generation but also educator for our patients and their families um, and the skill sets are transferable. So as I say I think there are formal roles that didn't exist uh, when I was at your stage um, but if you show an interest and if you get involved, um, people will help you along the way. 
uh, they did with me. I, I, I have a number of people that I need to be really grateful for, to, uh, for just creating opportunities, getting me um, onto committees um, and encouraging me to, uh, to just stretch myself really. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting point and it's great that so many formal roles exist like the clinical teaching fellow jobs and I think um, that was fantastic for both Jamie and myself to to have that time to commit to developing ourselves as educators and giving you kind of protected time to do your teaching in but there is also a lot of people that get into education and certainly my first kind of steps in it were just showing willing and going speaking to people that were involved and saying hey look I want to be involved what can I do um, and I'm yet to meet anyone that when offered an extra pair of hands to help with whatever it is that they're running in there in terms of medical education says actually no thanks we're all right we've got enough people uh, we don't want your help um, so actually that that was how I got started with just going I had a, an interest in simulation and just going to the sim department and saying look I want to I want to help out what can I do and everyone there started pointing me in the right direction and that's how I kind of got started off on this uh, medical education tract. Mm. And it's it's compared to other specialties whilst you do have mentors in other specialties and people who get you involved because medical education has so many varied routes into it it still relies quite heavily on networking and being able to meet other people um and it sounds like that was that was precisely how you got into it jackie that it was through meeting other people finding opportunities through that way um and i don't know whether that's something that will that will necessarily change within medical education um because it's such a pivotal pivotal thing to meet other people who are doing something in South End and Swansea and Newcastle and be able to share experiences where perhaps within, I don't know, gastroenterology, it's, it's the training programme takes that sort of place. Yeah, so um, if I go back to my early days as course organiser, training programme director, we were all starting out and there wasn't there wasn't very much theoretical knowledge we, we could take from other professions such as uh, as we did from teaching the teachers but but basically what we did is we supported each other and we would often um look at each well we did regularly look at each other's work and critique it um and that I worked with some really fine educators and I think what I, you know, reflecting back on it, it's a bit like learning clinical medicine. You see a fine clinician and you observe the ways that they communicate with patients. And so if you observe a fine educator who is able to engage their audience effectively, you can see whether or not that style fits you uh, and use it. So I, I remember a colleague um, who, uh, he, he was running a small group of 50 people and I said, this is really tricky. And he said, no, it's not. And he just showed a way of how you can be really interactive by walking around the room using the microphone. Now I think that is quite, 
a regular thing now, but in sort of 20 years ago, that was unusual. So <clears throat> the next time you need to do it, you can practice and see whether or not um, you can do that and, and get get the groups interacting. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's much to be said by observing others and having people observe you and give feedback. Mm. Certainly from my experience, starting the PG Cert three or four years ago, and there was a, a lecture that Lewis will remember from um, Professor DiNapoli, where yes. he, he gave a lecture on uh, educational theory, whilst also doing all of the things that he was talking about in the first half. And then the second half of the lecture broke down everything he did in the first half as to why he did it how he did it and for me that was like wow i i want to do some of this this i'm going to steal some of this and practice it and i remember we we went back to Frenny park and we had a long chat about what we were going to do how we were going to change our teaching styles um and and what we what we could do which we hadn't even considered before so that 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 was a big change i certainly for me i maybe lewis lewis was uh <laughs> less less interested i don't know no, I, I completely agree and i think actually you're completely right jackie that you you watch people teach in a certain way and you think that's fantastic and actually it was really interesting as you alluded to doing a pg cert that until you I, I hadn't picked up any of the theory before then but then actually having them explain it as like, oh that's why i thought that was such a great way of teaching because they've done this this and this and i didn't you know didn't understand the background to it but I was like what they are doing is fantastic and I'm gonna I'm gonna use that in my teaching and I'm gonna take that bit and I'm gonna build this into that session um and actually then having someone you know watching other people and having someone come in to watch you um really does I think help help you progress through your your kind of journey as an educator. I think there's a tendency to do one or the other i.e to just get out there and teach or mm to get bound up in the theory of education uh, and, and if you like, the, the academic side of it. Um, but actually it's, it's just like everything else in life. You need this combination of doing and understanding why you're doing what you're doing. So you need your theoretical knowledge and you need the practice and you need the feedback. Um, and, and it seems to me that without those three, you can be sterile as a teacher or not progress. And then the other is <clears throat> that just because we've done something one way doesn't mean to say we have to always do it that way. There's opportunities to try out new things. Clearly, there need to be some boundaries. One can't be too wacky. Um, but it, it, it's possible to try things differently. And I, I think I've spoken to you too about um, escape rooms. And if that is a good way of learning, let's use it. And then this gaming theory, let's incorporate that and, and see whether it's effective. And then we can evaluate and see whether or not it has the outcomes that we need. Um, that's the key, isn't it? To be clear what it is you're trying to achieve and try and measure whether or not you've achieved it. Absolutely. Something I was thinking through that and talking about whether you get into teaching through just doing it or getting lumped down by the theory the gmc say that duties of a doctor is that we should be we should be teachers we should be educators 
do you think that our undergraduate programs need to do more to promote developing those skills in undergraduates? I find it difficult to comment because I'm not sufficiently familiar with uh, all the undergraduate programs across the country. Mm. However, the GMC has stipulated that this is one of our key professional skills. And so one would expect that to be covered in the undergraduate curriculum. I think the tricky bit is um, making sure that it is and making sure that there is time for the students to um, practice their educational skills. Um, it's important to have feedback. I, I, I'm just not sure that the emphasis between education and clinical knowledge and skills is necessarily balanced. And as doctors, we have a responsibility to our patients and therefore we have to be clinically competent. But we've also got a, a, a responsibility to the next generation. And so we need to be educationally competent as well. Um, and I, I, I fear that our teachers in the workplace don't always understand the language that's necessary to give feedback to young educators <clears throat> to help them to grow. And I think you were extremely lucky to work with someone who could explain, or who, if you like, demonstrated and then explained why they did what they did. Because mm. I'm not sure that everyone at your stage has had that opportunity. Yeah, so I think that's, uh, I guess, one of the challenges um, potentially that you face as a kind of the leader of the, the academy is that they, um, how we can develop the, the future educators and what we can kind of put in place for, for people who are going to be the educators of the future. And I guess that's where the developing medical educators group can come in for, for those people who are just getting started out or that aren't sure what, what their next steps are to kind of come and get involved and see what we can do to, to help them out. Um, and I guess that's the whole reason why, why a group like this exists. Yes, and it's why the academy exists. And we spoke earlier about networks and the academy is a huge network of people, like-minded people, people who are interested in medical education um, and are interested in all sorts of different aspects of medical education. So we've got um, very fine brains amongst our membership um, who uh, are real experts in all sorts of different areas. Um, and then we've got uh, people who are beginning their career who just like teaching and just get a joy of working with young people and seeing them grow. And both are, uh, are equally important. Uh, absolutely. Um, and and for, for us especially, I mean, the, the Academy's been huge supporters of us. Um, and I know that they've been supportive of others um, in helping them to develop. Um, so in, in terms of the academy, um, we obviously know what they do. What, what, what would you like the academy to, to achieve? What are your aims, if you like, for the academy? I would like the academy to be seen by 
um, universities, the NHS and the government as the go-to place for standards in medical education. Um, and, and that's what we're proud of. Uh, I don't know of any other body that um, has described the standards uh, of a medical educator. Our standards are used by the GMC. They've been slightly modified. Um, and um, we have our standards for trainers. However, at the moment, we don't have a way of ensuring that individuals who have met those standards then maintain them um, in terms of our training workforce. So uh, if, if I were um, a consultant early in their career now and was accredited as a trainer, I'm not sure that it's absolutely clear what I need to do to maintain that accreditation. So the Academy could help by developing tools such as a framework that our appraisers could use um, so that the appraisal conversation included work as a medical educator. Um, we could develop tools that our trusts and our practices could use to ensure that those who have responsibilities for education are meeting the standard that is expected of them. So um, the trusts have a responsibility, um, but at the moment, I'm not sure that they necessarily have the tools and the, um, the methods to determine whether or not they are meeting the standards expected of them. I, we, we work on feedback. Um, and feedback from the trainees. But I would like to really think through, um, if you like, I don't know whether you've come across something called GERFT, getting it right first time, which is the standards yeah. for clinical care mm, yeah. and, and, and measures to ensure that um, we are delivering the best clinical care. So maybe we need to be thinking about um, tools and ways of of determining whether or not there is the best education going on as well. Hmm. Gurfed with a knee, getting education right the first time. <laughs> I'm sure we could come up with a snappier thing. Give me half an hour. Maybe we should, because I, I don't think it happens um, so much, but I, I can recall people being quite devastated by um, unfortunate remarks uh, in, in medical education, but I, I, it, it, in my career, I have observed teachers um, use inappropriate methodology to try and um, make, make learning happen. Mm. Do you think that that's, uh, do you think that that partly in the NHS is, is a timing thing? is that it's easier to squeeze medical education and supervisorship into a into a small box that doesn't take as much time as the never-ending waiting lists and the clinics that are running behind etc cetera, etc cetera. um do you think that that is one of the key players in sort of almost holding back development and changes and things like that 
Um, it's easy to, to, to blame the trusts for not giving it enough attention. Um, clearly, patient care has to, um, has to be a real priority. Um, and particularly at the moment, because I, I think uh, across the NHS, everyone is, is really working hard. However, if we don't pay attention to the next generation, there's a real risk that the skills that we have today are not passed on. Um, and that if, if we get education wrong, there's a risk that we damage the next generation and that they then continue to damage the generation that comes after them. And we know from Michael West's work that um, we need an NHS that cares, that has strong leadership, um, and therefore we need to pay attention to that. Um, and education, medical education, is so closely aligned with leadership um, that I think that we ignore it at our peril. I, I just what it would be nice if we could wave a magic wand so that we had the space for medical education. Um, mm. and, and certainly when I was a trainee, um, it, as a, uh, anyone who wanted to be a trainer had to demonstrate that they, they could identify two half days a week uh, to spend time with their trainee. And that'd be fabulous if as trainees, you you knew that you were going to have two half days a week with skilled educators thinking about your role as a clinician and your role as a, an educator and your role as a leader. That'd be quite something. It would. Yeah, I'm sure that that seems like a far-fetched dream for many people working in, in various aspects of clinical fields at the moment, thinking two whole afternoons in a week, they'd be thinking, oh, I'm lucky to get that in in two months. <laughs> or, or a lunch break yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes but you can do it you can do it um and, and it's a matter of saying this is what we expect mm -hmm. and and certainly when we introduced foundation training we did um create the space for the trainees to have protected time and there are parts of the country um well I, see, I, I speak with authority, but maybe I shouldn't. I, I, it may have slipped, but there, there is a way uh, of ensuring that the trainees have time. And I, I have observed some very fine examples of first class. Uh, now, it's not always one-to-one, -one, that half day. Um, so it might be as a group, but ineffective learning. And I think it's so crucial is that quite often the term service provision is bandied about um, as like a, as a bad thing. And actually, I, I often think that service provision is actually the job we're in. We're providing a service to our patients. And actually what people mean when they say their jobs are becoming purely service provision is that they actually mean it's not good enough training. Um and I think quite often it's that one-to-one -one learning from someone who's more experienced in the field from you, which is, is sometimes missing. Um, and I, 
I, I really I really hope that we can make sure that we get that time in with our our students, our undergraduates, our postgraduate trainees, because it's such an important thing to model model how you're going to be as a professional, how you're going to learn. Um, and if you lose that time and let the let the time be taken over by constant clinical measures, that's where I think um, we start to have problems with training. Um, so then think, thinking about the kind of the future and the next um, kind of generation of educators coming through, what can we do as leaders within the medical education field? What changes should we be putting in place to, to try and ensure that we're doing the best for, for the next generation? Well, I, we've, got, we've got the academy standards, which as you will appreciate have recently been revised. Hmm. <clears throat> um, and one of the areas that has been revised quite significantly is around governance and leadership. And I think it's an area that we hadn't really thought about uh, some years ago. Um, but what we're talking about is individuals such as my previous role as postgraduate dean, um, really being clear what standards we expect and ensuring that they're delivered. So um, I, I think we need to do that. I think that we need to be continually learning. So we just revised our standards. They'll need revising again as we move forward, as our ideas develop. Um, I think the most important thing we can do is to care about uh, the, the next generation, to really care that they have the opportunities to become the doctors, the leaders, the educators that they deserve to be. Um, and that we can do that by working with them, creating opportunities, um, showing them how to develop themselves, um, creating the space, creating time to have a conversation. It doesn't take long to say that was really well done, Lewis, or um, I really like the way that you spoke to that patient, Jane, um, Jamie. And so we can do it and it, it doesn't take long. So with that in mind um, of ensuring that the people who are coming through as, you know, postgraduate dean, etc., cetera, um, have the right skills in place, how does someone like me become a TPD or, you know, a program training director or something like that. Okay. Well, when when I was beginning, um, someone who who I I really respected um, and still respect said, "You need to be a good clinician," and I think that is the most important. If you are a mediocre clinician, I don't think you get respect and therefore people don't listen to you. The next is I think you need to be a good educator in the ways that we've been talking about tonight. We've been talking about workplace education, helping students and trainees to learn. We've not been talking about um, theoretical classroom teaching. We've been talking about working with patients and working with trainees and students and patients. And then one needs to be a leader and needs to develop the 
skills and attributes that um, are, are well rehearsed and documented in terms of um, the way that you interact with others, the way that you work as a team, the way that you work in your organisation and the way that you work collaboratively across organisations and just think about those various aspects of leadership. Um, now, you, you can only do so much. <clears throat> I saw a very fine tool the other day um, being developed for medical leaders, um, which uses like a spider graph around the competencies so you can see where you're focusing your attention. And I just think that we need to make sure that we are progressing on all three fronts. So the two of you will have progressed more in medical education because of doing your PG cert. Um, but what, what I would be doing if I were um, your supervisor would be saying, well, that's good. So you're ahead of the field there. Keep your clinical skills up. What are we doing there? What about your leadership skills? So we're going forward on all fronts. Because what we don't want is somebody who's really strong in one area, but isn't strong enough in the other areas to move them to the next position. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, so, so really we've got to be good at everything. Um, <laughs> Simple. It's really <laughs> simple to be good at everything. Um, um, yes, you do. Sorry about that. But actually, um, um, now if you read about leadership, there are yeah, there are preferences in in where one works as a, a in, in a team, um, and, and whether one likes to work with people or with strategy or with implementing a task. So I think we recognize that everyone has strengths. We also recognize that not everyone wants to be an educational leader. Some people get real joy out of working continually in the workplace with the next generation. And that is great that, that, that they don't need to then um, spend time understanding educational governance or the ins and outs of um, oh, I don't know the st statistical uh, approach to assessment or whatever else they need to understand their role whereas if you're responsible for an undergraduate curriculum you need people around you who can inform you as to whether or not the assessments that they're doing to determine whether or not students qualify or not are valid. You don't want to be a dean of a medical school and find yourself um, in receipt of an appeal and you haven't got the background behind you to be able to defend that, what you, that which you've been doing. So it's horses for courses and this is the joy of medical education, that you don't have to be good in all areas. But if you wanted to be a postgraduate dean, you need to think through what are the areas that you need to have 
developed credibility in before one moves into a leadership role. That does, so, so you need leadership skills, but you need to then think what you need to do to move to that role. So you've obviously got lots of experience as a, as a leader within the field of medical education. Can you think of any particular uh, kind of experiences or, or learning that you've done that have really helped you develop those leadership skills that you've needed to get from um, you know, someone who's working within education in general to someone who is a leader within medical education? There are two things that I have done that I have found extremely useful. And this is in addition to all the stuff that I talked about, about observing others. So <clears throat> I was relatively new as a GP um, and was offered the opportunity to, um, actually I was asked if I would work with the organisers to set up a programme to develop leadership skills. Interestingly, I'm not sure that it was called leadership skills. I think it was called group leadership skills or something like that. And, and that was quite a life-changing activity. Firstly, to be working with some really first-class educators. Uh, and, and secondly, some of the stuff that we were learning and learning with our peers sort of stayed with me for life. It was just, it was groundbreaking. And that was, and I guess I was, so I was a new principal in general practice, so slightly ahead of you in your careers. And then when I was postgraduate dean, I was facing some tricky situations and um, I worked with um, a woman called Presley Baxendale, who um, was a QC or is a QC. And she called herself uh, a born again mediator. And she talked about mediation skills. I, I was working with her in a mediation situation and I thought this was really interesting. <clears throat> and I had the opportunity to go on a mediation pro course and became an accredited mediator. And some of the things that I learned there have put me in good stead. There was some theory to mediation that I was completely oblivious to that was I, I have been able to use throughout the rest of my career to try and achieve the best, the, the, the win-win situation, um, because I think that's what leadership is about. Um, the, you know, the older dodge, people remember how they feel. And if they feel good about a situation where conflict has been resolved, um, then that's good. It is. And would you say that's sort of, sort of fundamental to your leadership style now or do you think you've taken that and adapted it and because obviously being the president of the academy you must have absolutely tons to to deal with and manage and, and lead on um do you ever have to have different approaches or do you do you find that you've developed the skills in order to allow you to sort of manage each situation differently um I personally think <clears throat> that a good leader is able to adapt 
uh, and able to adapt to the situation. So there were times in the academy when I have felt the need to lead from a from the front and um, but it needs to be short-lived and most of the time it's about well leadership is about delivering through other people isn't it it's about enabling others to see what needs to be done and to 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 enjoy the delivery of it uh, keeping the herd going roughly west is how david pendleton describes it i like that i think that's definitely something we could learn from is that far too often in the last couple of years we've been leading on something and then found ourselves doing absolutely everything on it to ensure everything is done I suppose the way we would want it and I suppose leadership isn't doing absolutely everything it's it's being able to like you say keep everything everything moving and cows moving vaguely west yeah Keep the herd moving. The herd. I've just because yeah, I don't give you talk about cows, that might not be seen as very polite. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Keep the herd moving vaguely west. But I like that. I think that's probably something that's something I'll I'll steal and I'll use in our next developing medical educators group meeting. Yeah. And and I, I mean I think it's good. Um what, what I would like to see is your your group just getting fired up and, and not going off in all directions. So you know what you're trying to achieve and probably only three or four things. Um, but it would be really good to get as many people involved and in, engaged in the delivery. And I think um, we, we just caught the, the end of discussing... Um, the academy conference I think things like that are really good I mean they're a lot of hard work but they really bring people together because it, when it goes well it's great fun isn't it mm. yeah. yeah absolutely and, and most of the, most of the people that we've met in in medical education have been through attending various conferences I mean it was only it was only through chance really that Lewis you bumped into Julie Brown didn't you at some so was it in Wessex? Yeah, at, at a, a Wessex medical education conference that we happened to be attending to present a, an entirely different bit of the work unrelated to the academy um, at all. And I think um, I think that's probably been the, one of the most valuable uh, coincidental meetings of my career. And I think that really changed the, the direction of where we were headed. Um, because as you alluded to earlier, the, the help that the academy has given us has been incredible over the last couple of years and hopefully as part of this developing medical educators group we'll be able to help other people come through and and access the support of the academy and point people in the right direction for where they need to go for their next steps as well mm. almost repay that sort of trust in us that you gave us to run the the clinical teaching fellows forum and and have that conference and then the support within Terrabang as well mm -hmm. um and hopefully have have this next bunch like you say be all fired up um and what what, what we're trying to do at the moment is is harness all of the brilliant ideas into into doing the simple things well so that we can get things done well initially and then spread our ideas and, and continue to develop and, and I think one of the things that we really want to achieve is is stopping this um, or trying to help stop the I'm a teaching fellow for a year 
and then everything that I've done is gone and then someone else will be here next year to do the same thing over and over again um and I, and I think that's one of the things that we've we've experienced is that quite often the the juniors involved in medical education do brilliant stuff but it's rarely shared beyond the local level and it's rarely developed upon by the people coming after us and if we can try and help um, help promote some sharing and some development um, and that's why we really wanted to call it the developing medical educators group to highlight that we're not just we're not just there for people who are day one or or year year 25 we're just there to help people develop within within education and keep the ball rolling I think we need a new currency um, currency for progression so in my day um, you progressed in your career in, in medicine um, almost by counting the number of publications. And, and um, I'm sure you've seen those CVs where the publications go into the hundreds. And that, like mine and Lewis's. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously. <laughs> and that's a brilliant currency for certain aspects, but particularly um, for individuals who... Uh, are great at getting grants who are productive in their research and that's great however it seems to me that we need a currency which um, is around practical activity in education that is documented in a reliable and reproducible way so to say oh well I ran a very fine teaching session um, and the students all rated me highly, doesn't have the same weight as having a publication in Nature. So I think we need somehow, this might be a role for the developing educators, to think about a currency where we can reliably document activity in medical education. Yes, you've got your PG cert and that counts for loads. But how does one document when you, for example, Jamie, you ran that really good session at ASME. How do you document that I ran a really good session at ASME and, and on who say so? Absolutely. People can't believe me. Me and Lewis had some feedback once that called one of our sessions gold dust. And we lived off that for a little while. But there's only so much self-promotion of, of what you've done you can do it and you're absolutely right how do you how do you quantify the fact that every single teaching session you do has has you know Im improved that trainee's experience and developed their knowledge and understanding um but i don't know the answer any ideas lewis yeah i was gonna say you you can't really put a value on the educational experience you're giving to to the students that you're teaching where wherever that happens to be um and the session that you've done might have just changed that individual or an individual in that room's life for the rest of their, you know, their, their working career. And yet, you know, that, that will go down as, oh, five out of five. I enjoyed this session on the feedback form, the same as <laughs> any other form. It doesn't really do it, do it justice. Yeah. But I, I guess the other thing is that someone said to me a couple of years ago, when we were on the PG set, that you learn, as much from bad teachers as you do good teachers 
and whether having a bad teacher is is has value in itself um and i i don't know what do you think i i i'm not sure that i can agree with that statement i'm not sure <laughs> that you do learn from bad teachers and i think you can learn from anybody yeah. um but there is a lot of evidence that we do not perform well when we're stressed or anxious um, so if a teacher makes you feel stressed or anxious or uncomfortable, um, I, I wonder how effective the learning is. Um, and, um, you know, we, <laughs> the old um, saying of spare the rod and spoil, spoil the child. Um, so a hundred years ago, it was quite acceptable to, to, to um, spank children to get them to do what they should be doing it's no longer acceptable because it wasn't effective. Mm. Um, at least I don't think it was effective. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that teaching by humiliation uh, is oh, no. a good thing. Um, and, and depends what you mean by a bad teacher. Um, and, and I just think we need teachers who are inspirational and who care and who or basically have the values of the academy. Excellent. So I'm um, just thinking about um, some practical steps that people could do to develop themselves as, as medical education leaders. Say Jamie or myself wanted to become president of the Academy of Medical Educators one day. Um, what, what things can we do practically to help us get from where we are now to where you are? So I think you're on the road. You've got your, your PG cert. Um, my guess is that you would need to augment that um, probably to master's level. Um, I, th I think it's always worth having a look at the job description for a postgraduate dean and see what they say are essential criteria because then you can work towards it. Um, I'm not sure whether one would need a doctorate in medical education because I, 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 I think if you were going in certain walks of life, you would, but to be a postgraduate dean, I'm not sure you would. Then I, I think you have to have a track record of having delivered. Um, so therefore, one needs to look for opportunities to get involved, to get engaged, to take responsibility. Um, and then there's a sort of career path is the next step to um, become a consultant, supervisor, a training programme director. We haven't talked at all about um, my role in the College of GPs, but I, I spent a long time on the council uh, of the College of GPs um, and built many fine friendships there, um, but also learned a huge amount in terms of um, making your case and taking taking a case, um, a document through a broad committee, there was about 70 people, so that you engaged people and could steer direction. Um, so you need those skills, you need skills in networking, um, you need to understand governance, yeah, there's quite a lot. 
but there is no one path. <laughs> it's about actually building up and saying, where could I learn those skills? And you might say, I can learn them by doing this job, but you might learn them a different way. So um, there are times in the academy where um, I feel a need, I, I probably don't do it so much in council, but I, I would do it in the executive to just say, hang on, wh where are we going with this? Um, you know, where's the business case to be spending that level of money or whatever else? Is to just make sure that we're following process. But just spend time with people who are um, in those positions. They don't have to be in medicine or in the NHS. There's a whole raft of opportunities out there. But I think if, if it's health related, it, it's probably easier. Um, if you wanted to develop leadership skills, you could, of course, um, look at the FMLM and their leadership opportunities because uh, they have leadership fellows just the same way as we have education fellows. Mm. I think that's really useful. Thank you. And it, it seems like a huge amount that you would have to do. But I think some of the interesting things that you say about developing a track record for yourself and you know, pro almost proving yourself that as a leader, you don't have to start leadership right at the very top. You can do leadership roles within various aspects that you're doing. So I guess, for example, Jamie and I, with the Developing Medical Educators Group, you know, we're not at the, at the lead, we're not leading the academy, but we're kind of having a leadership role uh, in a smaller capacity. And all of those things that you do will, will develop you as a, as a medical education leader. Um, and there are various aspects that you can do on your way to uh, your ultimate goal, whatever that may be. Yeah. So, so thinking about your group, what are the rules of engagement? So, for example, if somebody joined a meeting blind drunk, what's your rules of engagement or how you deal with that situation? And those are the sorts of things that you might start to think through. You probably won't think it through until it, it arrives. And mm -hmm. then you have to think on your feet. Um, and I think, I think so many of us encounter the situation and then, oh gosh, and then you go back to first principles. Well, what are the rules of engagement? Um, clearly, if somebody has um, been consuming alcohol, that they are disruptive to the group, that they can't have a place. But as professionals, we shouldn't be drinking alcohol. So, I, I mean, I give that as, as an example, but there may be others. What, what do you do if somebody makes a witty remark that is offensive? And that perhaps might be a more common occurrence. Mm. How do you manage that? And, and particularly with, um, with a committee like DMEG, we're, we're spread right across the UK and soon to be UK and Australia. So how do you manage... How do you manage that with people you've you've never really met? You don't know their background or what they're like. Usually, how how would you manage that? Um, we haven't yet come across that, but that it, it's those things that you're absolutely right. You don't think about until it happens, really. I suppose the thought I was having a second ago was that in terms of thinking about your progression through education, is that um, it's it's almost very similar to the the medical world 
is that where we've been, Lewis and I, we've been teaching fellows with no no leadership. You're sort of F1s in education. And we're now moving through to maybe SHO or junior register, taking a bit more responsibility. But with that safety net of having the academy's backing and support and all the people who can provide advice, the, the ability to do this podcast is because we have we have the support of the academy. Um, and I suppose that, that's almost like a plug. <laughs> that's a plug for the academy right here is that uh is that you know you can it's almost like we're in training if you like um, yeah but everybody's in training all the time aren't they i mean i mean you just think about each and every day um, and what you what you learn it's wonderful yeah absolutely i learned an awful lot about um about the health of dogs and dog conditions this week having suggested to my vet that my puppy had hemolytic uremic syndrome which didn't uh, didn't go down hugely well with the vet and she looked at me slightly bewildered as to why I was asking that but um yeah learn learn something new every day we're constantly developing so um on that note of continued development i think that's a great place to round things off with one final plug for the developing medical educators group if you are interested in uh, developing yourself as a medical educator, this is what the, the DMEG is all about. Um, so check out medicaleducators.org forward slash DMEG or look for us on Twitter. We are at DevMeded um, and come and get involved. Absolutely. And, and thank you. Thank you, Jackie, for speaking to us today. Um, it's been really great, really interesting. I think we could probably talk for, for ages thank you both for inviting me it's, it's good fun so that's it for today's episode of medical educate talks we hope you've enjoyed it and if you have please give us a follow so you can find out when the next episode is released if you'd like to find out more information about the Developing Medical Educators group, visit medicaleducators.org and we'll see you in the next episode.